I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the fourth chapter, reading verses 17, 18, and 19. Verses 17, 18, and 19 in the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. We come back once more to a consideration of this great and momentous statement. We are considering especially that 18th verse, where our Lord reads out of that 61st chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. The occasion is full of interest from every standpoint. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has just been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And as he came up out of the water, the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove. And a voice spake from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then after that, you remember, he was led or driven, if you like, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil forty days and forty nights. And there he repulsed the attack of the devil and defeated him. And then we are told that after these things he came back to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And they handed him this roll, this scroll, of the prophet Isaiah, and he found this place, the 61st chapter, and he read those words. And then we are told that he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now we are looking at it in this way. We have seen that the whole message of the Bible can be summarized in this form. That all men's troubles, all the troubles in the world today, are due to the fact that man does not listen to God. That was the cause of the original fall. Men listen to the devil, the voice of the adversary, instead of the voice of God, and thereby brought ruin and calamity upon himself. But God, in his infinite grace and kindness, did not, because of that, turn his back upon men and the world. He continued to look upon us. He came down into that garden at the very beginning, and he called out, Adam, where art thou? God has still continued to speak to men. And he speaks peace. He speaks salvation. And the whole message of the Bible is just that. How God has continued to address men. He's done so in various means and methods. He's raised servants, patriarchs, and prophets, and kings. He's spoken in action, in the flood, in the confounding of the languages, the language of mankind at the Tower of Babel, in the call of Abram, and in endless other ways, in the giving of the law through Moses, and so on. But now the message of the New Testament is perfectly plain and definite and explicit. You remember what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, don't you? Our Lord took Peter and James and John and went up with them unto this mountain there while they looked they saw him transfigured. 
His face began to shine with a heavenly glory and his very clothing attained a brilliance and a radiance beyond the power of the greatest fuller on earth to produce. According to the scripture, they saw this happening to him and Moses and Elias came and spoke to him. But still more significant, again a voice from heaven which said, This is my beloved son. Hear him. That's the message. Listen to him, said God, to Peter and James and John. And in effect he said to them, Go down from this mountain, go round and tell the people to listen to him. This is my beloved son. Hear him. So that the word of God to us at the present time is that. We are to listen to Christ in our predicament, in our trouble, in our agony and in our pain. He is the one whom God has sent to deliver us. Well, very well, that raises this vital question, doesn't it? What has he got to say? If I am to listen to Christ, I want to know what is Christ's message. And here he gives the answer. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's his answer. And you see, it means this. He takes that ancient prophecy of Isaiah, which had been uttered 800 years before he ever came into this world, and here, having read these words, he hands back the book and sits down, as was the custom for preaching in those days, and as they all sat and looked at him and listened, he said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears before your very eyes. In other words, he says, all that was written about me. All that is a prophecy of my coming. I am the Messiah of whom Isaiah spoke. So that is his answer and that is his message. In other words, he tells us why he's come and what he has come to do in terms of these pictures that were painted long ago by Isaiah, but which he adopts and uses because they represent in such a perfect manner his ministry and his message. What then has he come to do? What has the Lord Jesus Christ to say to us? Well, we can put it in one principle, as we have already done on previous Sunday evenings. He has come into the world to deal with sin and its effects and its results. For what we have in this verse is nothing but a number of pictures and representations of sin and its consequences. So that what he says is that he has come to tell us something about that. He has come to deliver us from sin and all its terrible effects upon us. He has come, he tells, tells these people here and tells us, as the bearer of glad tidings, he's come to preach a gospel, good news, the most thrilling and the most exciting news that the world has ever been privileged to listen to. But you see, at once that raises a question and a problem, doesn't it? If that is so, why doesn't everybody listen to him? Why is it that the whole world doesn't go after him? If he has come to deliver in this way, well, why is there any unhappiness left? Why are there any problems remaining? Why is man still in misery and in a state of sin? Why is there war and rumors of wars? Why do we need international conferences? Why is anybody unhappy? And you know, in this very section we are looking at, we are given the answer to that very question. Because the end of this incident in the synagogue at Nazareth was this. Our Lord went on to say certain other things, and the people became infuriated. And then we are actually told that when he went out of the building and went walking through the city, he came to that point where there was a kind of brow of a hill, 
And they try to push him over in order to kill him and destroy him. But in a miraculous manner, he walked through them unharmed and made his escape. But you see, this is the problem, isn't it? How is it conceivable, how is it possible that anybody listening to gracious words like this should reject them and reject him and try to get rid of him? Or to put it in a still plainer manner, here's the problem. Why was it that the world rejected the Son of God? He ended his life on a gibbet. He ended on a cross. The people cried out, away with him, crucify him. And he was crucified. And he died the death of a felon. Why is this? If he had said that he'd come to bless the world and to destroy us, well, we could understand such a reaction. But listen, this is what he says. This is what he's come to do. Why is it that there is anybody who doesn't believe in him and receive his glorious message? Well, there's only one answer. It is because of sin. It's because men and women don't know what sin is. It's because they don't accept this fundamental biblical teaching about man in sin, the fall, the entry of sin and evil, and man as he is as a consequence of that. It's because they don't know that, because they don't believe that. If they did, they would run to him, they'd thank him for his message, and they'd give themselves to him. It's the old problem of a failure to understand the nature of sin. Well, now then, our Lord deals with it for us. And that is why I imagine he adopted these pictures of Isaiah. Because they are such perfect portrayals of sin and its effects. What does sin do to men? Well, we've already seen it makes him poor. He has come to preach the gospel to the poor. Sin is that which robs us and makes us paupers. Secondly, sin is that which leads us to break our hearts, to feel hopeless and helpless. Sin is ruination. Sin is that which causes us to put on sackcloth and ashes and to have a spirit of heaviness upon us. It robs us of joy and bliss and contentment. It leads to the broken heart. And now this evening we come to the third picture. He says he has come to preach Deliverance to the captives. That's the third thing. Well, now, here is another picture then concerning sin. The doctrine is obvious at once, isn't it? Sin, according to this picture, is that which leads to slavery and to serfdom. Sin leads to captivity. But at once we ask the question, do we believe that? Do we believe that the vast majority of people in the world tonight are slaves, captives, serfs, bound in fetters and in chains? Of course, to the world, outside Christianity and outside Christ, this is utterly monstrous and ridiculous. Their view, of course, is that you and I are the slaves, still slaves to this old gospel, still doing this which we are doing in this building at this moment. And they, well, they're enjoying the freedom of the world. Life, seeing life, living life, having a good time. They've shaken off the shackles of religion, and they're absolutely free. Free men in a free world, and having an amazing... Isn't that the view? So that when Christ stands before them, as it were, and says, I have come to preach deliverance to the captives, they say, well, of course, that sounds very wonderful, but uh, it's got nothing to do with us. We are not interested. We are, we are not captives. There may be some people who are, but we are not. And so they smile and they turn away and say, well, perhaps uh, a gospel like that may be needed in slum areas uh, where people live in the gutters of sin, but nowhere else. You know, that's what they said in the time of our Lord himself. On one occasion he was preaching this gospel of his and apparently there was some unusual effect and power because we are told that 
As he spake these words, many believed in him. And he then looked at them and said, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they shouted, Hallelujah, nothing of the sort. When he said, If ye continue in my word, ye shall be my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, they stood back upon their dignity and they said, We have never been in bondage to any men. And how sayest thou then, ye shall be made free? You're insulting us, they said. You're offering us liberty. We don't need it. We've never been in bondage. They were utterly ignorant, of course, of their own history. They'd been in the bondage and the captivity of Babylon and of Egypt. That was all forgotten. They didn't realize the bondage they were in at the moment. So our Lord said to them, If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. In other words, there is still this failure that obtained when he was here on earth to understand that sin is slavery and serfdom, bondage and captivity. Well, very well, let me demonstrate it to you. Let me prove it to you. This is something that is taught by the Bible everywhere from beginning to end. Sin is slavery. Let me show it to you. Let's look at the captivity, first of all, in general. And according to the Bible, according to the scripture, there is a general captivity to the devil himself. And that is true of the whole world of men by nature. According to this doctrine, we are all born into this world under the dominion of Satan, under the bondage and the tyranny of the devil. Now, I read that section from the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke at the beginning, because there our Lord Jesus Christ himself puts this doctrine in a very plain and clear manner. You remember his picture. He said, The strong man armed keepeth his goods in peace, but when a stronger than he cometh, he taketh from him his armor in which he trusteth and set his goods at liberty. Now you remember that message there from that 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him his armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. Now what's he mean? What's he talking about? Well, remember the context. The context was that he'd been casting out devils, and some people said, Oh, he's doing this by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the devil. And our Lord is refuting that argument. So what he says in effect is this. That he has come into this world. He is the one who comes who is stronger than the strong man armed. He has come into this world. Because the world is comparable to that picture of a strong man armed keeping his goods in peace. And the goods are you and I, the world, men in sin as the result of the fall. That's his picture. I can't think of a better way of putting it than this. It's the picture, if you like, of a great castle. There are extensive grounds in the castle, yes, but the whole is surrounded by a mighty wall, by doors that are barred and bolted and keepers here and there a tremendously high wall. No man can climb it and scale it and get away that way. We are all confined within this mighty prison. We are allowed to walk back and forth within the prison grounds, but never to get out. The keeper of the palace, the prison, he sees to that. That's our Lord's picture of mankind. The devil is the strong man armed. And men and women, all the progeny of Adam and Eve, they are the goods. And there we are, we are kept in the captivity, 
absolutely at the mercy of this strong man armed and we can do nothing about him. We are helpless in his grip. That's how our Lord himself put it. But you remember that later on uh, in speaking to a man called Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he put it in a different way. He has chosen this man who had been such an enemy of his, not only to be a Christian, but to be a great preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. So the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he told him that he was going to send him to the Gentiles and to the people. What for? Here's the, here's the statement. To open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God. You see the same idea. As they were, they were under the power of Satan. And he is sent to preach to them to turn them from that to God. And again, you notice how Paul subsequently puts it in that section which we read together just now out of the second epistle to the Corinthians. I'm preaching this gospel, says Paul. Everybody doesn't believe it. Some do and they rejoice in it, but there are people who reject it. Why? He answers, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe the glorious gospel of Christ. Why don't they believe? It's because the devil is blinding them. Of course they say no, it's because of their scientific knowledge, because of their profound philosophies, because of all their great learning. Not a bit of it, says Paul. It's the God of this world who has blinded their minds, lest they believe. This apostle Paul is always preaching it. He puts it, you remember, to the Ephesians in this form. We all by nature are dead in trespasses and sins, in which we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all also had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, obeying, serving the lusts of the flesh and of the mind, and whereas others by nature the children of wrath. That's another way of putting it. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And again in the epistle to the Ephesians, he puts it like this. We wrestle, he says, not against flesh and blood. The problem isn't merely men, but principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. My friends, that's the teaching of the scripture. Whether of the apostles, the inspired apostles, or of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And you see, being interpreted, it means this. Why is the world as it is tonight? The answer is, it's being controlled by the prince of the power of the air. It isn't men. It's something behind men. Why are men as they are? Why are they jealous and envious? Why are nations warring? What is it? Well, the answer of the Bible is, it's the devil at the back of them. Not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. You don't begin to understand the Bible if you don't believe this. You don't understand life as it is today unless you believe this. You don't understand yourself nor anybody else unless you believe this. There is an enemy, unseen spiritual power opposed to us and he has his emissaries and his agents and they govern and they rule and they control. Haven't you found it the first thing you wake up in the morning? A thought comes. Where from? You didn't think it, you didn't want to think it. You'd give the whole world if you could stop thinking it. But it comes, what Paul calls, the fiery darts of the wicked one. He hurls them at us. Haven't you known it? It's not surprising that good old Martin Luther, with his spiritual understanding, in that study of his one afternoon, took up his ink pot and hurled it at him. 
The room was filled with the presence, the malign power and influence. Had you realized that about yourself, my friend? That you're in the power of Satan. Who can influence the mind and the heart and the very body itself. Our Lord healed a woman one day who was absolutely doubled up in her spine and had been like that for 18 years. And when he'd healed her, he said that he'd set her free one whom Satan had bound for 18 years. Satan had done that. Are you satisfied with your explanations of the state of the world today? Do you really believe it can all be accounted for adequately in terms of politics or economics or social conditions or anything else? It's far too superficial. It's too glib. It's too facile. It isn't enough. It isn't a Hitler. It isn't a Stalin. It isn't the modern representatives of Russia. No, no, it isn't men. There's something behind all this. And it's the devil, it's this power that's opposed to God. The devil hates God. And his supreme ambition is to reduce God's great work of creation to chaos and to wretchedness. That's why he's doing all this in the world. It is to spite God, as it were. To say God claims he's a great creator. Look at his world. Look at men particularly. The supreme creation of men, look of God, look at him. That's the background to the whole of our captivity and our bondage. The strong man armed keepeth his goods at peace. But you see, as a result of this, the bondage takes many other forms. Let me just note them very hurriedly. We are all in bondage to the world and its way and its methods and its thinking, its outlook, its everything. We all in times past, says Paul to those Ephesians, walked according to the course of this world. God forbid that I should speak of this in the wrong way or in the wrong spirit. But is there anything more obvious than the fact that men and women live a life in the main which is controlled and governed entirely by what the world's doing? It's the newspapers and the cinema that determine conduct. That isn't my opinion. I'm quoting Sir Richard Livingston, a great, perhaps the greatest authority on education in this country. This is how he puts it in one of his books. He said that he had come to the solemn conclusion that the main result of popular education since 1870 right up until today seemed to him to be mainly this, to produce a mentality that is capable only of appreciating the culture provided by Beaverbrook and Metro Goldwyn. That's an exact quotation. Don't imagine for a moment that it's what men are taught at the universities and the colleges and the schools that determines how they live. Not at all. It's the morning newspaper and the cinema. Look how people dress. Listen to their speech. Look at, the, look at the slang. Look at the idioms. Look at the terms they use. Where do they get it? They all get it in the same place. They're all doing the same things. The thing to do, what society is doing, what everybody's doing, that's slavery. And if you show any signs of being an individualist, you're dismissed. Difficult fellow. Nobody can work with him. He thinks for himself. It's an appalling crime today to think for yourself. We must be like the mob, the mass, like a herd of sheep. The slavery to the course of this world. You examine yourself, my friend. And work out this problem. To what extent are you deciding what you are and what you do? To what extent are you being governed by the thing to do in the class to which you belong? The accent. The cut of the clothing. Even the amount of the cuff of one's shirt that shows. Yes, it's all right. You can laugh at it, but it's a fact. 
It's one of the badges. It's one of the signs. And so on and so forth. And yet they scoff at Christianity. They're free men and not settled by this miserable narrow gospel. They're slaves who don't know it. And then come and think of the bondage to particular sins. The awful captivity to particularities. Lust of the flesh, says Paul, yes, and lusts, desires of the flesh and of the mind. Are you free? Are you free in your body? Are you free from your instincts? Are you controlling your instincts or are they controlling you? Are you free, my friend? And not only the body, but the mind. Evil thoughts, jealous thoughts, envious thoughts. Wishing people evil things. We wouldn't dream of saying them, but we think them. We imagine them. Hearing bad news about someone you don't like. Praising God almost for it. That's slavery. Lusts of the flesh and of the mind. And then think of the slavery and the bondage to habits. Is there anything more difficult than breaking a habit? Oh, how it holds us and binds us. We want to stop. We say we're going to stop. We'll take a pledge and a vow. We promise someone on solemn oath. We ask them even to help us to do it. And still we repeat it and go on doing it. Slaves to habits and vile and evil practices. And then think of the whole group. You see, I'm merely giving you headings. We could go on for weeks on this theme. Bondage to fears of various types. And oh, what a bondage is this. Phobias, they're called today. Fears. And oh, how they come down upon you. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy in this respect as well as in the others. What am I talking about? Well, do you know what it is to be afraid of your own conscience? How it rises up against you and points its finger at you. That thing you did. That thing you said. And it brings it back and resurrects it and taunts you and mocks you and jeers you. Oh, that one could get away from one's conscience. But one cannot. The book of Numbers has said the final word about that. Be sure your sin will find you out. It doesn't say somebody else will. It says your sin will find you out. Bondage to conscience. Bondage to fear of the future. What's going to happen to me? What's going to take place? What's the news I'm about to hear? People are terrified. They live in a perpetual dread of terror and of alarm, afraid of the future, the unknown future. And then the fear of death, that horrible last specter, that whether we like it or not, we see arising yonder on the horizon and coming ever nearer to us, we do our utmost to stave him off and to postpone that he's coming and coming and coming. The fear of death, according to the epistle to the Hebrews, mankind is subject to this fear, to this bondage of the fear of death, who all their lifetime, he says, were subject to bondage because of the fear of death. It spoils everything. And then beyond it all, fears of that unknown born from which no traveler returns and the possibility of judgment and retribution. But I mustn't keep you. Those are some aspects of this bondage and captivity. My friend, have I said enough? Have I convinced you? Have you seen that you're a slave, a serf, in, captive, in captivity and in bondage? But if you'd like it positively, I'll put one thing only to you. If, you do, if you're not convinced by what I've said, listen to this. Can you find God when you seek him? 
when you find and know Jesus Christ at will, are you free to live the Sermon on the Mount and the Ten Commandments? Are you free to enjoy the Bible and to enjoy prayer? Have you tried it? Are you free to do it? You try it and you'll soon discover that you're a slave and absolutely helpless and hopeless. You try to climb out of that prison, out of that castle. Try going up that wall. You'll be clubbed down onto the ground. You'll be hauled back. You're not allowed to. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not lest. That's the captivity. Oh, how I am privileged to stand in this pulpit tonight to tell you about someone who says that he has come to preach deliverance to the captives. He says he can. He alone can. Nobody else could. Adam and Eve couldn't stand up to the devil. Abraham couldn't. Noah couldn't. All your saints of the Old Testament, they all tried. He defeated them all. Show me a man anywhere who can stand up to him. There never has been one. Here is the only one. He and he alone. That's why the gospel is good news. At last here is someone who can, who has, who will. He did it in his earthly life and ministry. All the records of his miracles are but illustrations of it. He regarded that as the work of the devil and he delivered people. He drove out, exorcised devils. He made the woman doubled up straight. He said to another, go and sin no more. He comes to the man of Gadara with a legion of devils. He drives them out and the man sits clothed and in his right mind. They're all but illustrations of this. They're but examples on the physical, material plane of what he has come to do in the spiritual realm and on the spiritual plane. And he has done it. And how does he do it? Well, let me, I say, but give you my headings. He did it first and foremost by meeting the devil himself and defeating him and routing him. I'm afraid we don't appreciate the significance of the history of the temptations in the wilderness. The devil came himself. He didn't send an agent. He came in person. And he was determined to drag down this son of God. He believed he could. There is no end to his self-confidence and his assurance. He went and he cried, If now be the son of God. He repelled him, he repulsed him, he conquered him simply by quoting scripture. He dismisses him with a word. The devil comes back, he always defeats him. And if he cannot defeat the devil himself, he cannot deliver us from the devil and out of the bondage and the captivity of the devil, but he has done so. He did it in life, yes, and he did it in his death. The devil in his blindness and folly imagined that if he could but encompass the death of the Son of God, that he would have defeated him and that he would have triumphed over him and God's great scheme of salvation would collapse. So he worked in the minds of the Pharisees and scribes and the Sadducees and the doctors of the law and they influenced the mind of the people, the ignorant mob who had been acclaiming Christ one day, the very next day almost says, away with him, crucify him. The mob oratory succeeded. And the devil was delighted because the Lord was condemned and was crucified on a cross. But you know what was happening there? Well, Paul, in writing to the Colossians, puts it like this. He says that in his death upon the cross, he was putting principalities and powers to an open shame, triumphing over them by it. It is there he defeats the devil most of all, because there he defeats the power of death, which was the devil's greatest weapon. And thereby he finally routs him. He has taken the sting out of death and robbed the devil of his power. So in his life and in his death, 
The Lord Jesus Christ has conquered and has vanquished the devil. He has delivered him a mortal blow and he merely exists on sufferance until Christ comes back and finally takes him and casts him to a lake of fire to destroy him for all eternity. This is the one who was sitting on the floor in the synagogue of Nazareth and saying that he had come to deliver us from captivity to set the captives at liberty. He is strong enough to overmaster and overpower this strong man armed and to take away from him the goods which he had held so long in captivity. He has defeated him. But you know that isn't enough for us. Before I am free, I not only need to be delivered from the bondage and the tyranny and the dominion of Satan the devil. Before I can be truly free, I must be back in God's kingdom. I was made for it. The devil has taken me into his. It's not enough to be taken out of the kingdom of darkness. I want to be translated into the kingdom of God. And it's only Jesus Christ who can do this for me and he's done it. I cannot enter the kingdom of God. God is holy and righteous and pure and he can't look at me in my sins. I want to get in, I can't get in. Here is one who can take me in. And how has he done it? Well, the barrier between me and entry into the kingdom of God is my sin. But Christ has taken it away. He took it in his own body and he bore its punishment on the cross on Calvary's hill. And the gate of heaven is open to me and I can walk in freely and enter into that liberty, that glorious liberty of the children of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I am not only liberated from the dominion of Satan, I am free from the curse of the law, the condemnation of the law of God. No condemnation. Free from the law of God in that sense. Free from its terror, free from its alarm. Ah, yes, says someone, that's very well, but you know you're still in this world. And the world is still the same and there are temptations and sins and subtleties. It's all very well to believe all that, but how are you going to live in a world of sin? Listen, he still goes on setting me free. He not only delivers me from the guilt and the condemnation of sin, he delivers me from the power of sin. How does he do this? This is wonderful. He does it by giving me a new nature. Have you realized that? Christianity doesn't merely offer you forgiveness. It offers you a new life. It offers to make you a new man. It talks about regeneration, a rebirth. It will give you a new nature. It will make you a partaker of the divine nature. How does that work out like this? I have a new outlook. I have a new understanding. I see sin now for what it is. I see what I was. I see the danger of it all. I now hate what I formerly loved. Not only that, I've got new desires within me. I long for God. I'm speaking my experience. There is nothing that I so want as I stand in this pulpit as to know God and to be like Jesus Christ. I want to be holy. That's a new man. No old man would speak like that. No man as he is by birth speaks like that. What do they want? Ah, they want what the world has to offer. But a man who's given a new nature, he wants new things. He wants a new life. He wants holiness. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He wants a clean and a pure heart and a pure mind. He wants to be holy. That's how we are delivered from the power of sin. And we are given to see ourselves as the children of God and we have glimpses of heaven and we long to be there. Every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself 
even as he is pure. But not only that, we are given a new strength which is not our own. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, you remember, says the Apostle, but against the principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all things, to stand, stand therefore, with your loins girt about with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in your hand the sword, which is the word of God. There is your armor, there is your protection. Let even the devil come, the shield of faith, which will quench the fiery darts of the evil one as they're hurled at you. And a new strength within that even amazes one oneself. And added to this and over and above it all and infinitely more precious. The consciousness of the nearness of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what it was when you were very small? To be harassed and perhaps tormented by some bully that was older than yourself, who was always threatening to hit you and to hurt you. And how terrified you were, lest walking along the road, you'd suddenly meet this person, this boy or this girl, this bully that was threatening you. Ah, oh, but how different it was when you were walking along the road and you saw the bully coming, yes, but this time you were with your father. And you are no longer afraid of the bully. There is nothing more precious, more wonderful than to feel that the Lord Jesus Christ is near. Our hymn has already said it for us. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Why? Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. When he is near and we know his almighty power, the one who vanquished the devil in single mortal combat, what have we to fear? If he is with me, who can be against me? I have come, he says, to preach deliverance to the captives, so that when the devil trains all his power upon you and tempts you so that you're shaking literally, quivering physically and feel you're on the point of collapsing, remember him. For if you cry out unto him, he'll always hear you. He'll never refuse you. And he will look into the face of the devil and remind him of his defeat. And the devil will leave you so that the apostles are entitled to say, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Even though he is as a roaring lion, says Peter, roaming about seeking whom he may devour, resist him steadfastly in the faith. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. He sets the captives free. Deliverance from the law and its condemnation. The guilt of sin, the power of sin, yes. And through the Holy Spirit, even from the pollution of sin. For the moment you believe in Christ, he puts his Holy Spirit in you. And he unconsciously is at work within you. Work out your own salvation, says Paul, with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you, both the will and to do, of his good pleasure. The cleansing of the Holy Spirit. The progressive work of sanctification. Liberating you from the very pollution as well as the power. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. 
His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. My dear friend, has it availed for you? The Son of God said in Nazareth that he had come to preach deliverance to captives. Have you heard him? Do you know the liberty? Has he set you free? Do your past sins torment you? Or do you know that they've been blotted out by the blood of Christ? Are you afraid of the law of God? Or can you say, the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from you. Are you afraid of death and the judgment? Or can you say, I have passed through judgment into life? Do you know the liberating power of Christ? Have you got the new mind, the new outlook, the new understanding? Do you know what it is to feel Christ near you, delivering you? Are you aware of his power working in you mightily? Is the Holy Spirit working within you, weaning you from earth and all its enticements, creating within you desires and aspirations after God and holiness. My friend, it's one or the other. Christ came into the world and lived and died to set you free. Are you free? Are you being liberated? If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Are you free, I ask? If not, just where you are at this moment in the bondage and the captivity that I've been describing. Cry out unto him. Ask him to have mercy upon you and to deliver you and to set you free, to translate you from the kingdom of darkness into his own kingdom, his blessed, glorious kingdom, from the darkness to the light, from Satan to God. Cry out unto him in your utter helplessness. Don't waste time in trying to be better. You'll never be better enough to face God or strong enough to defeat the devil. It's all done by Christ. He delivers. Let him deliver you. Just as you are. Cry out unto him. And he will raise you up out of that horrible pit and miry clay. And set your feet upon a rock and establish your goings and accompany throughout the remainder of your life in this world. Be with you in the river of death and hold up your head above it all and beyond it all. And then beyond will take you by the hand and will present you faultless before the presence of God in glory with exceeding joy. Amen.